You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Last week, and then along those same lines, if you haven't brought your baby bottles back yet for the CPS, um, definitely encourage you to do that. Obviously, a lot going on with uh, the changes in Roe v. Wade, and so excited to be able to support them as their ministry will undoubtedly increase uh, over the coming weeks and months, and so encourage you to give if you haven't already done so. Uh, in that manner too. So um, pick up a gift if you didn't get to last week, and then also don't forget to drop your baby bottles um, off on the way out today as well. Luke chapter 7, we, last week, like I said, we were uh, studying the prodigal son. Um, we looked at in our lowest of lows and in our lowest of highs, God remains generous and gracious in his dealings with repentant sinners, inviting us to come and enter into the joy of his salvation. So we compared and contrasted the prodigal son and the elder son. The idea that the prodigal son left and then came home and experienced his father's forgiveness, which incited anger in the elder son, that he felt like he was owed by the father, that he had earned his father's love, he had earned his father's provision, and wasn't getting that now. And so there was interaction and dialogue there between the father and the elder son. We talked about how it was set in the context of the worst of the worst sinners coming to Jesus and kind of the best of the worst sinners uh, being angry about that. And so Jesus spoke this parable to confront that, that bad mindset. Um, and so he shared the parable of the, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. The idea being that heaven rejoices, heaven rejoices over uh, repentant sinners being found, right? And we talked about how the prodigal remembers the goodness of his father, and that's what draws him home. That when he hits his lowest of lows, when he's in the pig pen, he remembers how good of a father his dad is. Uh, Not just to him, but to even the workers of, uh, of, of his fields. And so he goes home expecting and hoping to find goodness from his father, which he experiences in ways that he didn't even uh, expect or anticipate, right? Um, and then we talked about the elder son and his reaction, and, and ultimately the elder son represented by the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the ones who were angry about something similar happening with the tax collectors and the sinners, and we said that if you carry that story out further, as John MacArthur shares in his book, ultimately the elder son kills his dad because that's what the Pharisees do to Jesus. The Pharisees respond in their anger and crucify him. Today I want us to look at uh, two other parables um, that kind of tie in with some of the same mentality going on there, this idea of self-righteousness. And so we're going to look at um, the two debtors in Luke chapter 7, and then we're going to look at the, the Pharisee and the publican in Luke chapter 18. We're going to spend more time in Luke 7, less time in Luke 18, but I did want to look at both parables today because I think they tie in well uh, in in what Jesus is trying to communicate uh, to the people there. Our summary sentence for today, uh, tying in both parables, I will love Jesus and others to the level I understand God's forgiveness in my life, meaning the more I focus on what he has done for me, Rather than what I've done for him, the more I will love him and the better I will treat others. I will love Jesus and others to the level I understand God's forgiveness in my life. Meaning the more I focus on what he has done for me, rather than what I've done for him, the more I will love him and the better I will treat others. For our kids, my sin was great, but Jesus forgave me, giving me great reason to love him and others. We're going to see how this concept of Uh, recognition of our own sin, the debt that we owe to God, the forgiveness that we've experienced, how that drives us to a state of gratitude 
and ultimately a response of love, not just to him, not just to Jesus, but also to those around us, right? And so we're going to see how both of these parables point us into that direction. And so both these parables, just as last week's did, deal with this concept of self-righteousness, right? Thinking too highly of ourselves, thinking that we are not necessarily in need of God's grace, or at least not in need of it like some other people are. We are quick to highlight our good works, our accomplishments, the things that we have done for God, almost with this unhealthy expectation and anticipation that God now owes us in response. And so I think it's worth remembering this morning, or or at least reminding you that repeated biblical warnings ought to get our attention, because they are going to apply to us at some point if they don't apply to us right now. So there's a lot of things that are mentioned in Scripture that maybe you come across them at different points in time and you say, well, I'm not really dealing with that. That's not an excuse to then just dismiss it, right? The Bible talks a ton about the love of money, talks a ton about our sexual thirst, and talks a ton about self-righteousness. And so whether you feel like you're in the camp of one who deals with self-righteousness or not today— you certainly need to heed these warnings to hear this message because it's a repeated message by Jesus. It's a repeated message because Jesus is constantly dealing with two different types of audience. One, the individual who sees their sin, who sees their grossness, who sees their rebellion, and, and is broken by that and needs to know what to do with it. Well, they come to Jesus. But then there is also a portion of his audience that doesn't think they need this message of the gospel, doesn't think they need this message of grace, doesn't see their sin, doesn't see their rebellion, doesn't see their need for repentance, and they too need to come to Jesus. And so he's constantly going back and forth talking to both. And we probably have people that fit into both camps here today, those that sometimes are crippled by their failures and don't understand that God, if God can love them or not because of what they have done. And then others who see your failures and, and feel justified in their actions because they feel like I'm not as bad as that person, right? Both of us need to hear that message today uh, of what Jesus shares in these two parables. Uh, we need to guard against self-righteousness. We need to guard of thinking too, uh, too highly of ourselves and too lowly of others. It's the opposite of what Philippians 2, 3 and Romans 12, 3 tell us to do. Romans 12, 3 cautions us, don't think too highly of yourself. Don't think highly of yourself. Don't think too highly as as you ought to think of yourself, right? To see yourself as a member of the body of Christ. Philippians 2 talks about putting the needs of others above our own needs, to humble ourselves as Christ humbled him. Um, If we aren't careful, and this is what I would want us to see from from the two passages we're going to read today, if we aren't careful, we'll show just enough outward respect for the things of God to remain lost in our sins. Let me say that again. If we aren't careful, we will show just enough outward respect for the things of God to still remain lost in our sins. Because the characters that we're going to see today, uh, the, the Pharisee Simon who invites Jesus to dinner, which is the context of our first parable, um, would have been a super religious individual, would have, would have loved the law and would have loved himself keeping the law. Right? Fast forward to Luke 18 when Jesus tells the, 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 the account or the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee was an individual who was very aware of his obedience, very aware of his faithfulness to God from his perspective. Right? And yet both would be considered lost in these stories. Both would be considered unjustified. Right? 
not in right relationship with God. And so we need to be careful today. We need to be, be careful to pause and to reflect upon our life that we're not in that category of an individual who shows enough respect to God and to the things of God to be passed off as a Christian amongst people here. Right? And, and I would have our young people heed this warning too because you've grown up in a Christian home. You've grown up in church. And if you're not careful, you will heed enough respect to the things of God to pass yourself off as a Christian. Everybody would have thought the Pharisee Simon was a Christian. Everybody would have thought he was a believer in God and, and, and was right with God. And Jesus shows and exposes his self-righteousness to show that he's not. So we need to hear that warning. We need to yield to that warning today. Luke chapter 7. Let me read for our text to you today. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his, fa- wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. Verse 41, A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say amongst themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I'll love Jesus and others to the level I understand God's forgiveness in my life meaning the more I focus on what he has done for me rather than what I've done for him, the more I will love him and the better I will treat others. Point number one for today is focus on your forgiveness to be loving. Focus on your forgiveness to be loving. Now, here's the, the, the bigger context of this parable, right? So you read all of Luke chapter seven. Here's what you're gonna find. You're gonna find Jesus healing individuals at the front part of this chapter, all right? He's healing the uh, centurion's servant. He's raising a widow's son to life. But then he breaks away from those healing opportunities and begins to talk about John the Baptist because John the Baptist sends messengers wanting verification that Jesus is who he says he is. All right? And so then the messengers spend time with Jesus and Jesus is intentionally healing people to fulfill prophecy that the Messiah was, was prophesied to do, types of healings, right? So Jesus does these things and then sends those messengers back and says, tell John what you've seen. This is verification that I am who I say that I am. Then Jesus starts to talk about how John and Jesus are being rejected, but also being accepted. Look what verse 29 says. 
Um, when all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So you've got groups that are accepting, and then also groups that are rejecting, really, whether God is just, right? Um, and then you've got Jesus talking about how both he and John the Baptist are being rejected for, for basically almost being opposite in some ways. Look what it says in verse 33. For John the Baptist has come, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. Then the Son of Man, Jesus, has come, eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He's like, we can't make you people happy, right? John the Baptist is living one way, I'm living a different way, and you're finding fault with both of us. Both of us are here as prophets, and you're rejecting both on different grounds. That leads to this invitation to dinner. One of the Pharisees, who we learn his name later in this account, being Simon, asks him to come to dinner. And we're going to see in this parable, but really leading up to this parable, the treatment of both the the Pharisee and the treatment of the sinful woman and how both reflect how they view themselves and how they view Jesus. So let's start by looking at the self-righteous Pharisee. His treatment of Jesus reflects how he views himself and how he views Jesus. So, We've just learned that the Pharisees, by and large, as a group, they're rejectors of Jesus, rejectors of John the Baptist. So there's no reason to think here that Simon invites Jesus out of a desire to learn from him, out of a desire to submit to him, or out of belief in him as the Messiah. More than likely, he is inviting him as a skeptic with an intent of being critical towards him at the dinner. How do we know that? Well, I think when you read and you see the woman coming and interacting with Jesus and you see Simon's thought pattern, right? It's not vocalized, but he's thinking to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who this woman was. He would know the type of things that she's done and he wouldn't let her touch him because she's a sinner. So his conclusion is, is that Jesus is not a prophet, which he probably didn't go into the dinner thinking that he was. He probably went into the dinner thinking that he wasn't, and now he's verified that in his mind. He's clearly not a prophet, right? As a Pharisee, he would have have been known as a religious man who took sin and the law seriously, and we certainly see him exuding that in this setting at dinner. But look what's noticeably absent from this dinner. Right? He throws the dinner. There are plenty of guests here. We don't know who else was there. We don't know if some of the disciples were were invited or if it was just Jesus. But there's this dinner that's thrown. We know there's other people there because they're referenced here as well, but not by name. We know Simon's there. We know Jesus is there. But notice what is absent from this dinner. The absence is what's really crucial to understanding what's happening here. What's absent from the evening's events is the washing of Jesus' feet, a kiss of peace to him, and the anointment of oil towards him. These things don't happen as they should have, right? That's the point of the passage here, is that Jesus comes back to Simon and says, okay, you've got problems with what this woman has just done to me. I've got problems with the fact that you didn't do it yourself, right? Like as the host of this party, as the host of this dinner, these are things that should have already happened. 
as a hospitable individual, he should have welcomed his guests and he would have potentially done this to all the other guests, right? But Jesus sits here at the table with dirty feet, without a proper welcome and without the ointment on his head, which would have been of accustomed to be done towards someone who was a guest, particularly a high honored guest, which is what Jesus should have been perceived as at that time. Those things haven't happened. And I think that too is an indicator of how Simon felt about Jesus. His lack of hospitable care shows a complacent view of Jesus and was most likely calculated to serve as a subtle insult for others to see. Remember, Simon's got a persona to upkeep with other people watching. So there was probably other Pharisees there, other high-ranking officials. They would have taken notice too. Hey, Jesus isn't overly being honored here. Right, there's still a, a, a door of skepticism that's been opened about him, and we haven't gotten verification whether Simon the host even believes him yet. Right? Um, it's almost like uh, maybe you've seen a movie or a TV show before. I, I tried to think of a good reference, and I couldn't, um, but I know they're out there because this, this illustration rang true in my mind. You've ever seen maybe a movie or TV show where there's like an awkward dinner scene where maybe a daughter is dating a boy that, that dad doesn't exactly like, but invites him to dinner, and they're sitting there eating, and the dinner gets real awkward because dad is obviously trying to show his daughter that this guy's not worthy of her, right? And so the conversation starts to just get awkward because the dad's trying to, to make him look like a fool. That's kind of how I picture this dinner going, Right? Hey, Jesus is going to come to dinner. Hey, I'm going to invite some of my best friends or some of my closest religious officials to come to this dinner too. And then I want you to intentionally notice that I don't wash his feet. I don't greet him with a kiss. And I don't, I don't really make a big deal about him being here. We don't know if there was conversation that happened prior to the woman stepping in. Um, but but I, wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt the fact that, that, that maybe even Simon in the conversation was typical of what we see, Pharisees trying to trap Jesus. Pharisees trying to ask questions that seem genuine, but trying to, to trap him. Simon's heart is reflected clearly for us uh, when the woman steps in. Um, and he also has a lack of respect for Jesus uh, further when he talks about him clearly not being a prophet because of what he's allowing to happen. Now, Let's look again at what he says here. The woman steps in. Uh, she begins to, to cry and begins to wipe the tears on his feet, to clean his feet. She anoints his feet with oil or ointment. She's kissing his feet. When the Pharisee who had invited him, verse 39, saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. I put in my notes here. We need to note what he's saying here. Like, like, Here's what's really, what he's really saying. He's saying, Jesus doesn't act like me, so he can't be who he claims to be. Otherwise, he would be acting like me. Man, what a, what a, what a bold thought process for Simon here. He's saying, Jesus can't be who he says he is because he's not acting the way that I would act if that was happening to me. Notice that he never in his mind does it enter the thought that maybe his view on this woman is wrong based on how Jesus is responding to her, right? He never pauses to say, oh, wow, like maybe, 
Maybe she's not as bad of a sinner as I think she is. Or maybe it's okay for her to touch him in this way. Maybe it's okay for her to have these eyes. He never entertains the idea that maybe I'm wrong. Right? So he's obviously not seeing Jesus as a true teacher that he needs to follow. He's looking at it and saying, Jesus isn't who he says he is because he doesn't treat this woman the way I would treat her. He would prefer to have her kicked out. Right? She's there for mercy, but she isn't good enough for Simon, and he doesn't want to see her forgiven. And this, this rings of what we saw last week with the prodigal son and the elder son. The elder son would have wanted the prodigal son kicked out, right? Don't come here for your mercy. I've been faithful for all these years. You're a horrible sinner. There's no place for you at the table. That's the same attitude here of this Pharisee Simon. He's self-righteous. He thinks that his actions warrant his acceptance before God thinks that Jesus should respond to her in a way that he wants to respond to her. It shows how he views himself and Jesus. He thinks of himself very highly, and he doesn't think much of Jesus. Can't be a prophet because he's acting in ways that aren't consistent with us as religious leaders. Number two, the sinful woman's treatment of Jesus reflects how she views herself and Jesus. Now, her sins are egregious enough that they must be common knowledge amongst the people. Luke makes note here, behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. When she learned that Jesus was there, she comes, right? And it's the Pharisee who sees her come in that immediately notes in his mind, she is a sinner. We don't know exactly what sin she's involved in. It makes most sense to think of her as a prostitute, one who would have had open sins, who would have advertised those sins, publicized those sins. She was known for this, right? She's known for this. Um, She's probably even been rejected by Pharisees more than once because of how known her sins are. Now, while her sins were were a cause for embarrassment, she's obviously not too embarrassed to come to Jesus with it, right? She has to overcome her own pride of not wanting to be embarrassed about what she's done. She comes, And she comes hoping for mercy. He's her only hope at this point. And as well known as her sins were, she knew her sins well better than anybody else there besides Jesus, right? And so she comes hoping for mercy. She comes broken, right? We see her weeping. We see the tears flowing. Um, And in the midst of this, I think she starts to recognize what Jesus has not received already. And she chooses to do for him what the Pharisees or what the Pharisee Simon and then even others at that table were not willing to do, right? They weren't willing to do this. And she recognizes it and she begins to wash his feet. She kisses his feet. She anoints his feet with oil. According to Jesus, as we're gonna see as this continues to get unpacked, she loves him like no one else there. And the question that I would ask for us as we contemplate the difference between Simon and this woman is, do we believe like her? Do we believe like her? Do we believe that we need forgiveness and that Jesus is willing to do it, making him worthy of our best acts of love? Let me say that again. Do we believe like her? Do we believe that we need forgiveness and that Jesus is willing to do it, making him worthy of our best acts of love. Now, again, we don't get insight as to what all is happening here at this conversation, but I mean, it would be silly to think that there's not more going on, right? 
Maybe there's conversations that's happening, but what we do seem to get here is that there's this awkward silence, I think, that happens in the midst of their dinner being interrupted. Her appearance and her scene would have probably caused everybody to get quiet. What's Jesus going to do? Here's the woman that we all know, and we all know what she's done, and here she is, uninvited, coming to the table. She's crying like a mad woman, right? She's, she's undone her hair, which would have been an improper thing for her to do in that culture as well. She's wiping his feet with her tears, right? Um, and let, let's not romanticize like what this would have even looked like. I mean, she's probably snotting and like just like a mess, right? Like nobody, nobody would have said this and said, hey, me next, right? Like nobody wants their feet washed with snotty tears because that's probably what's happening here. Right? So it's just kind of a it's just a it's just a gross scene in general, right? Like what's Jesus going to do here? Like surely Jesus is appalled by this. And so I think everybody's silent. And again, who knows what type of jabs were being thrown at dinner before this towards Jesus. But I just picture Jesus kind of munching on something sitting here watching this happening, right? Nothing's being said, but all of a sudden we're told Simon has a thought, right? Maybe you've seen those movies before too, where uh, an individual or a character in the movie can hear other people's thoughts and the audio is always a little different so that you know that you're hearing thoughts, not just hearing verbalization, right? So Jesus understands these thoughts. And so if we were watching an episode of Jesus's life, this scene, we would get that weird audio, right? Where Where we know that we're hearing Simon's thoughts, not hearing him vocalize those ideas. And he begins to say to himself, Jesus isn't a prophet. If he was, he wouldn't let this happen. Like he would dismiss this lady so quickly. And I just picture Jesus watching her, munching on some type of food. It's quiet. Everybody's wondering what's going to happen. Jesus has got everybody's attention. And he turns his thoughts to Simon and he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. I'd love to know what Simon's initial thought was right? Like he's in mid-thought about Jesus not being a prophet, and then boom, Jesus says, I got something to say to you. He's like, uh, okay, you know, say it to me, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii, the other 50. These, these numbers that are thrown around here are probably a, a, the amount of a day's wage, right? So um, one guy owes 50 days worth of wages. Another guy owns, owes 500 days wages, right? So you're talking about... Um, Almost two months worth of debt versus um, almost two years worth of debt, right? Year and a half. Big difference in those amounts of debt. Now, depending where you're at financially, they're both astronomical in a lot of ways, right? Um, And the Bible's clear that neither could pay, right? So this emergency issue comes up. The one guy hasn't followed Dave Ramsey's rules. He doesn't have three months of of bills covered in his savings account, right? So he can't pay. He's on baby step number one still. He hasn't gotten to to, to kind of build up his savings. So he can't pay this two months worth of bills. The other guy hasn't, you know, he followed all the baby steps with Dave Ramsey and he still doesn't have enough because who has that kind of money in savings to pay that much, right? Almost two years worth of wages, Neither of these guys can pay. And Jesus says the one who this money is owed to forgives. He forgives both the debts. And then Jesus poses the question to Simon. Who loves more? Who's more grateful for their debt being removed? 
who will love this more? Who will love this individual more? And Simon answers reluctantly, I think, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. Number three here, what's the parable point? How I see myself treated by God will drive my treatment of him. How I see myself treated by God will drive my treatment of him. The idea being here, Jesus says, is those who are forgiven the most love the most. The gratitude is generated when one sees the amount of debt owed and the amount of debt forgiven. Now, again, no words are spoken during this scene. It's awkward silence leading up to it. Simon has these thoughts, and then Jesus interjects this parable. And it's used to confront Simon's self-righteousness. Jesus shows that he is a prophet, right, by speaking directly to Simon's thought pattern, right? He knows who the woman is. He knows her sin, but Simon dismisses it and says he can't be a prophet because he wouldn't let her act this way. He further shows himself to be a prophet because he's, he, he knows exactly what Simon's thinking. And I, and I, can't, I can't doubt the fact that, that, that Simon recognizes this probably at some point too. Wow, he just spoke directly to a thought that I was having, Right? There's contrast between these two individuals. Both owe debts they can't pay. One feels uh, it way more, though, than the other. 50 days wages versus the 500. Now, these two people represent the Pharisee and the sinful woman, right? And so Jesus' point is, is that one of you barely does anything to honor me, and the other does everything possible in the moment. Right? You've got the Pharisee, Simon, who's done little to nothing to show honor to Jesus. And then the sinful woman who has come giving everything, her most valuable possession. She has embarrassed herself completely in front of the religious group. Right? She has completely abandoned herself to Jesus. The punchline of the parable is who loves more? I love how Luke points out that he's talking to Simon, but he's looking at the woman which indicates to us that he's talking to both, right? He's making a point to Simon, but he's also making a point to the woman. He is reinforcing her understanding and belief that he will forgive. He tells Simon, look how she loved me. And then he points out the fact, look how you didn't love me. The things that she has done, she had to do because you didn't first do these things for me. Now, I think it's important for us to see here that the point Jesus is making isn't that bigger sinners can love him more. It's not about the act of sin. It's about the awareness of it, right? It's not that, oh, so Jesus tells me to love him, and he also tells me I'll love him more if I am forgiven more. So let me run out and do a bunch of bad stuff that I can then be forgiven of, and then I'll be able to love him more. Like, that's not what he's arguing for here. What he is saying is that the individual who is more aware of their sin, more aware of the debt that is owed, the more that individual love that indiv- the, the one who is forgiven because they see the greatness of the debt. So the point isn't that bigger sinners can love more. The point isn't about action. It's about awareness. All can love much because all owe so much. The condition for our forgiveness is realizing there is a debt and realizing you can't pay it. Simon's probably in a spot here where he, maybe he sees a debt, but he feels paid up because of his good works. Right? So it's not that we go into this depressive state of, 
wow, Jesus tells me through Adam's sermon that I'm supposed to be more focused on my sin and my failures. So I start focusing on my sin and my failures, and now I'm just like hopeless because, yeah, you're right, I am awful. No, like the idea here is that we see our sin, but we see his forgiveness. Remember what we talked about last week? The prodigal turns towards home. And when he turns towards home, the father doesn't give him any time to explain himself. He just comes running to him to forgive him, right? We see our sin, we see our need for forgiveness, and it drives us in an attitude of gratitude to love him. If I want to love Christ more and love others more, I need to cultivate a greater awareness of how much I have been forgiven. Love flows from gratitude. This sense of need and an inability to meet that need on our own and being able to turn to Jesus to meet that need for us. You could say then that the cure for self-righteousness is self-knowledge, right? How do I cure my tendency towards feeling self-righteous, thinking that I'm so good? Well, I really try to correct my thinking and seeing how bad I am and how I fall short of his grace and how I fall short of his glory. And I am a sinner by nature and, and no good work could ever fix that. Right? And that's where the Pharisees were in this trap of thinking, hey, maybe we're sinful. Maybe we have to offer sacrifices, but look at the things that we've done. And that leads us to shifting from this parable over to Luke chapter 18. Because that's again where the Pharisee mindset was. Luke 18 verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am like the other men, uh, that I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Number two here in our notes, and this is where we'll move a little faster now. Focus on your forgiveness to be exalted. The context of this parable Some in his listening audience, as Luke tells us, were guilty of trusting their good works as grounds for God's acceptance and were treating others as worse sinners than themselves. Pharisee and the tax collector. This this parable doesn't hit us the same way that it would the original audience because we come into it already thinking Pharisees are the bad guys. And we kind of come into it thinking, well, tax collectors are the good guys. I've read enough of the Gospels to know that tax collectors followed Jesus and Pharisees didn't. Right? So if we, if we think of it more in our context, it's like saying the, the local pastor and the downtown drug dealer, right? The individual who takes advantage of others and makes his money off of others is the tax collector. It's the drug dealer. So imagine Jesus telling this story in such a way where, where your local pastor and your, your downtown drug dealer came to church and they both offered up prayers and it was the drug dealer who walked away right with God. Like, you'd be like, well, that's not possible. Like, drug dealers are bad dudes, right? Like, they're involved in all of the worst things. Like, even lost people think bad of drug dealers, right? That's the parable that he tells. 
the worst type of sinful character that you could think of. He comes into the temple to pray and he leaves justified. And the best spiritual person you can think of walks in and leaves condemned. And it's reflected in their prayers. Number one, the self-righteous Pharisee's prayer reflects how he views himself and salvation. Notice what he does in his prayer. He starts by recounting his spiritual resume, both negatively, things that he hasn't done that others do, and positively, things that he's kept, certain rules that he's done really well. Notice how he minimizes those rules to the ones that he's really good at, right? Ones that are super manageable for him. Here's how often I fast. Here's how I give my money. His religious exercises make him right before God. He even exceeds some of the law's requirements here. They weren't weren't required to fast twice a week, but he does it, right? He's gone above and beyond. So much so that he needs to remind God about it, I guess, right? Like, don't forget, God, that I've done all these things and, and I'm right with you because of it. Just like the elder son we saw last week, the Pharisee believes his external obedience to God warrants or obligates God to treat him in certain ways. Now, let us not be guilty of, of, of carrying this parable out and saying, God, thank, thank you that I'm not like the Pharisee, right? Let us not be judgmental towards the Pharisee. Let us see that we oftentimes are like the Pharisee because we're certainly like him if we expect God to be good to us in specific ways because we've been good to him. Let me say that again. We are guilty of what the Pharisee is guilty of here if we ever expect God to be good to us in specific ways because we've been good to him. Right? God says to us, be holy for I'm holy. If we're not careful, we look to God and we say, be good to me because I've been good to you. And that's, that's kind of how he's doing this prayer. It's like, God, like this is what I've done. These are the things that I haven't done. Thank you that I'm not like this other person with an expectation now of find me acceptable. Now, we should absolutely expect God to be good to us, not because of anything about us, but because he's promised to be that way, right? We err when we start to think that God has to be specifically good to us in specific ways because then we are expecting that God owes me payment for what I've done to him. We should absolutely expect God to be good to us, not because of who we are, but because he's promised to but he's never promised to be good to us in specific ways. His goodness to you looks different than the ways that he's good to me a lot of times. He gives certain things, he withholds certain things. If we're not careful though, we come to God and we say, God, be good to me in this way because I've been good to you. We need to avoid becoming complacent in our spiritual growth by finding security through a comparison with others. Pharisee feels like he's good because he's better than the others around him. But notice the sinful tax collector and how his prayer reflects how he views himself in salvation. He doesn't come presenting a spiritual resume to God. He comes standing far off, humbled in his approach to God, not even lifting his eyes to heaven, beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He focuses on what he knows he has done and what he has failed to do, and he cries for mercy. There's no acknowledgement of an entitlement here. The point of this parable is how I see myself treated by God will drive my treatment of others. The Pharisee sees himself justified by God for being good and therefore rejects others who he perceives to be worse than him. 
Whereas the tax collector sees himself in need of justification by God on grounds of mercy alone. It's the same mentality the prodigal son had last week, right? He comes to the father and in his thought process, he's saying, I'm not coming back expecting to be a son because I don't have any reason to, to think that, right? I have failed my father. I'm just hoping he'll hire me on as a, as a day hand that he can pay well because he's a good guy. And he gets a totally different type of treatment when he comes home. This, this publican, this tax collector, this drug dealer comes and says, God, I'm a sinner. I don't have anything to offer you to, to excuse me for this. No excuses. I'm just crying out for your mercy, crying out for your grace. And that too is what he finds. Jesus says he's the one that walks away justified, whereas the other walks away condemned. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. There's consistency in these two parables as we close. All right, Jesus is talking to an audience that is filled with people who need his grace and mercy and know it, and then others who need his grace and mercy and don't realize it. And he's speaking to both and he's giving hope to both because what he's saying here is that, hey, you worst of the sinners, there is room for you to come. But he keeps speaking to the ones who need it and don't realize it, which shows that there's hope for them too. They just got to see it. They got to see how in need they are, that their self-righteousness is not the grounds for acceptance, that they are at fault, that they need salvation. They need his mercy. They need to be forgiven of a great debt as well. And the idea being here is that if we will see it, if we will turn to him for forgiveness, that we will respond appropriately by loving him and loving others, that we will be exalted, we'll be forgiven, we'll be justified, we'll have a right relationship with him. And that as we see our depth of sin, we will respond in gratitude and love, which will translate how we treat Jesus, how we follow Jesus, but also how we treat others too. Because notice in both these situations, you had one individual who felt like he was right and felt like others were wrong, right? And wasn't willing to see any error on their part and could only see the error of everybody else, right? Here's the woman, she's the sinner. There's the tax collector, he's the sinner. Neither one of them see their own faults. And it leads them to treat others wrongly. Leads, others, leads them to treat others wrongly. So as far as application goes, I'm going to ask you this question, and then I'm going to give you two points that I think are helpful as I kind of assess, well, how do, we, how do we respond to this, and how do we push back against this? Am I more confident in my self-righteousness, or am I more aware of my own sinfulness? Am I more confident in my self-righteousness, or am I more aware of my own sinfulness. And two points of application for us today. Number one, determine to look for your areas of fault when conflict arises with others rather than immediately jumping to self-justification. Number one's hard because this is where most all of us fall, right? Conflict arises, something has happened and we immediately go into self-justification about why we're not at fault. All of us know people who are seemingly right in their minds all the time, right? 
there aren't a whole lot of people out there that are known for being wrong all the time, at least self-admittedly, right? We might, we might know people that are wrong all the time. They don't know it though, right? You don't come across people that you describe and say, there's an individual who thinks he's wrong all the time, right? We could all, we could all come up with people that we would say, that individual thinks he's right all the time. And I don't mean the type of wrong where you just kind of self-beat yourself up and say, oh yeah, it's probably me. It's gotta be me. I'm surely at fault here because I'm always at fault. I'm talking about the individual who would look at a situation and say, I've got some responsibility here, surely, because there's conflict and it can't be all the other person's fault, right? This is one step towards us seeing that we are indebted to God for the forgiveness that he's extended to us, that he has removed all the debt though, right? He's removed all the debts, but we see our flaws, we see our faults. And what that does is, is it drives us to appreciation to him for the forgiveness that he's extended to us. Realizing that when we see our fault, it's not that I need to have, I have to now go and atone for those mistakes. No, they've already been atoned for. They've already been atoned for. But, the, but when we start to shift in our mindset of thinking that we're always right, to, to seeing our, our wickedness and evil that God has cleansed us from, but seeing that we're still fleshly and we still respond in the wrong ways, we see our flaws. I mean, that drives us back to his feet drives us back to his feet, crying and weeping, but finding forgiveness every time we come there, right? Determined to look for your areas of fault when conflict arises with others rather than immediately jump into self-justification. Don't be so quick to be self-righteous about your rightness. Be more quick to see your wrongness and your sinfulness and give glory and honor and worship to Christ for forgiving you of those faults. Ask forgiveness of those that are involved in that conflict with you acknowledging that, that you're at fault, like realizing that you're probably at fault because you're not, you're not giving into that self-righteous tendency. Number two, let me encourage you also to intentionally spend time with others who you perceive to be better than you to help remind you that you aren't as good as you think. This is healthy. This is healthy for us to be around people who are growing and spiritually maturing faster than we are or are further down the line that we can come behind and follow after. Man, what I love about our elders here at our church is I think all three of them are better men than me. And I get to meet with them weekly. They challenge me and they encourage me and they push me towards Christ. We need those type of individuals in our life, right? People that remind us that we're not as great as we think we are, right? Anytime I think I'm being a good husband or a good dad, I spend time with our three elders and I know they are better at those jobs than me. We need individuals in our life that push us in that direction, that help us to see, man, I don't have it all figured out. I'm not as great as I think that I am. It's how we fight against some of that self-righteousness that oftentimes bubbles up in our life, right? We don't wanna be like the Pharisee sitting at the table saying, man, I'm better than that individual. We don't wanna be at church looking at the individual saying, I'm better than that individual and push back against that. Look for your faults, look for your flaws. Come to Christ for forgiveness for those things. Spend time with others who you know are following Jesus and let them pull you along behind them towards Jesus as well. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you are a God of forgiveness. We thank you for these pictures of a sinful woman who has nothing to offer the church, no religious resume to come with, who you welcome with open arms at your feet. But God, we're thankful that you took the time at that dinner to speak to Simon. 
and you challenge Simon. A self-righteous individual who, though we don't want to admit it, represents us sometimes far better than the sinful woman. God, we are prone to see our goodness. We are prone to think that we deserve from you. But God, help us to see that you speak to Simon as well. You call him to submission to you too. God, help us to see when we're the sinful woman that we can come to you and experience forgiveness. Help us to see when we're the self-righteous Pharisee. God, help us to turn to you for forgiveness as well. Help us to see that both parties can be justified. Just like the father petitioned to the elder son to come to the banquet, to lay aside his anger and to come and to rejoice. God, help us to see if we're in that self-righteous camp today that we can come and we can be forgiven. God, help us to see that when we will see the depth of our sin and what you have forgiven us from, it will naturally translate into us loving you more and loving those around us more as well. So God, when we're interacting with each other, help us to see our flaws. Help us to see where we're at fault. Help us to lay aside our self-righteous tendencies to think that we're always right. God, help us to see our great sin against you and how you have forgiven us. God, I pray that it would shape the way that we view you and our submission to you. I pray that it would shape the way that we see others around us, that we wouldn't view each other with contempt. We wouldn't see ourselves as better than others. Instead, as Philippians 2 tells us, that we would put others above ourselves. Help us to do that in response to the forgiveness that you've given to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.